and that jarring cacophony tells you that once again you're listening to the Power of Three podcast. It's the 12th of November. That means it's Sunday and I'm probably off work today. No, I am off work today. I don't work on Sundays. I don't work at weekends. Unless it's Vortex for Big Finish. And I'm Kenny Smith. And I'm David Steele. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. I do work on Sundays sometimes. If I'm not working on Sunday, I tend to be walking around Queen's Park in Glasgow talking about Doctor Who with Kenny Smith. Now... Yes. You may have gathered from that little segment of the Jaren Cacophony when you heard a very familiar theme tune from circa 2010 on the Doctor TV show that we are covering today Matt Smith's 11th Doctor. We're not doing it on day 11, obviously, because the War Doctor screwed all that sort of stuff up. <laughs> we are talking today about the fantastic Touched by an Angel by the fantastic Johnny Morris. We are indeed, although... Dave, not that Johnny Morris and no. not that Johnny Morris. No. Dave, have you ever been touched by an angel? No, but I have touched one. Okay. Do you know Probably. That, yeah. Do you know that <laughs> one, of the, one of the churches near me has actually got a proper weeping angel in its grounds? In one of the churches in East Kilbride. Okay. In, uh, it's just in the grounds. And I spotted it one day when I was out for a walk. I was like, bloody hell, there we go. A real proper weeping angel. Is it there the next time you passed? Do you know I haven't actually noticed? That's a good I, um, When I used to do my my Radio Times Facebook profile pictures for each week of each new Doctor episode has been out. I walked around the the, um, the cemetery at Paisley Woodside Crematorium um, for an hour one slightly rainy June afternoon in 2012 taking photographs of some of the angel monuments there for a for the Radio Times cover I was planning for the Angels Take Manhattan. So I might post that on the socials. I might share that if you know if it. You know, I might actually see if I can find some of the photos. Actually, mm, I'm do. sure. I'm sure I can access a couple of them. Long, long time ago. Yeah. But yes, touched by an angel. Now, um, we've both read it. We have indeed. It was book number forty-seven, the forty-seventh original new BBC book after the series came back, and it was released in June twenty eleven. And I know exactly where I was when I first read it. And where was that? I was on holiday in Salou. All right. This was my third year in a row in Salou. I've been there 2009, 2010, 2011. Okay. And I took it out with that wave of books that had just come out. Right. Now, before we go back to talking about the book itself, do you know what really, really annoyed me about the 11th Doctor books? What was that? The fact they were a bigger size than the 9th and 10th Doctor books. Oh, right. Books. That really annoyed me. As I gather some of the other books that we're recording, and it, all right, yes, it's, it's definitely a bit... That's interesting, actually. I'm going to open Touch by an Angel. I'm going to open... Expletive deleted to avoid. Actually, no, we've done it already. It's been out already. I'm going to open the yes. Steelers of Dreams and do a comparison. Print looks about the same size. Mm-hmm. Interesting. What about anyway. page number? How many pages oh, in total in gosh, each book? Right, hang on. Well, Final page of the novel. Tiny Wimey. 254 pages in Steelers of Dreams. Yep. And I think this is it's very close to it because I reread this the other night. Yep. I read it in one go, listeners. Apart from interrupt myself to go and make my tea and eat my tea and That's my friend right. Steve, I read it in one go, which is even faster than I read it the first time and I devoured wow. it the first time. 237. Oh, mm. so bigger pages but smaller page count. So that does make sort of sense. So, really yeah. so when did I read it, Ken? I read it, I didn't read it when it came out, I read it, in fact I can tell you when I was reading it because I tweeted it at the time saying... Devoured, touched by an angel by Johnny Morris this week. Devastatingly good, and the regulars are captured perfectly. Now, that was on the 30th of January 2014, so wow. I was reading it 
because I was in that little period of mourning because Matt Smith's doctor had recently left us on television. Yep. I seem to remember I read Broken, no, not Broken Time, Borrowed Time. Yep, by Naomi Alderman. Round about the same time, and I think the Trenzalore paperback probably followed quite soon after mm-hmm. Tales from Trenzalore because I read that. One of my tweets here, actually, I'll come back to because I had a, a brief Twitter exchange with Johnny uh, at this period and I sort of said, um, at Johnny Morris, me addressed to at Johnny Morris, currently reading, Touched by an Angel, had a right laugh on page 110. Johnny replies, cheers. And I said, and page 191 made me roar too. Oh, that is my favourite page. To which Johnny said, ah, the two Rory's. And I said, tumpty tumpty tum. And then I replied to, to the last of my tweets a couple of days ago saying, rereading his podcast homework and page 110 just made me do a massive lol again so we might even have a clip of that at some point going forward but yes I love this book I didn't read many of the Living Doctor books but hands down I think it's the best and I'm going to be controversial here and sort of say this is this is Johnny Morris doing what Stephen Moffat did in Doctor Who but do it 90% better not 100% better because if I do a couple of mild criticisms um, but a timey-wimey clockwork plot simultaneous action different timelines and stuff all over the place with witty strong characters lots and lots of emotional reality um, and just written in such a compulsive way that I remember the first time you know I, I inhaled this book and I did the same again when I reread it the other night I just I sat up till you know the back of midnight and after having started at the back of six and just having read the whole thing in one go and do you know what listeners I've never read a Doctor Who book all the way through in one day before in my puff wow. so there we go I can't give it I can't give it enough praise quite frankly yeah well when I first read it as I said I was in Salou mm-hmm. and I read this in my first week out right because I like Johnny's stuff so I think I read this one first in fact I'm pretty sure that I did and then I read the other two can you remember what the other two were at this time for, just for context um let me think let me think let me think well Naomi Alderman's book Borrow, Borrow Borrow Time, Time, the aforementioned and then there was Paradox Lost which was by George Mann, who we heard from a couple of days ago. Of course. Um, yeah, paradox. This, obviously, paradox. There's some paradoxical stuff going on. Touch Angel, so that must have been must have been what they were going for. I, mean, I haven't read Paradox Lost. Last, I must actually oh, seek good. that one out. George is a great writer to read really the full set. But I remember when I read Borrowed Time very soon after Touch Me Angel, and I read that rattled through that very quickly as well. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I, so yes, I read it the first week when I was out. Read the other two books, uh-huh. and then. Because we were sort of, I think we, actually that year, I know for a fact we ran out of money. Oh, really? Because we spent far too much uh, <laughs> on a couple of trips out. Right. Buying Dunkin' Donuts. Because Dunkin' Donuts had disappeared from the UK at that point. I see. And then we discovered some in the town of Tarragona. Not as Tarragona, not Tarragona. And um, they were amazing. So we, had, we spent a little bit too much on Dunkin' Donuts. And so we had to spend a bit more time in the hotel. So I ended up reading this book again. Touched by an angel, I and I loved it even more the second time. And will I tell you why I loved it, Dave? Tell, tell me why. Ain't because it's got that. But a heartache. Sorry. <laughs> it was because it was the '90s setting was just absolutely perfect. Right. Because the t- I think Johnny's a couple of years older than I am, mm. but I was at uni and sort of felt you know those exact experiences. Yes. of going to like student unions, sure. Sure. nights out. Yeah, just. Yeah, wonderful flat sharing and the, you know, I mean I didn't go to university I, I decked about in um, Recare College in Paisley for a couple of years after leaving school um, I still went to student unions and had all some of that sort of thing I mean that's yeah. um, obviously one thing that hopefully you'll ask Johnny about I felt actually reading that again I felt that the I was surprised that there wasn't as I probably 
in my memory there have been a lot more sort of contemporary specific 90s references um, throughout um, so I was a bit surprised that, that I didn't remember as many as I thought I did but we'll hear about that from Johnny Johnny good. will talk about all these 90s places like good. Our Price and things like yeah. that good 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 um, we should say a little bit about the story Yes. Um, it starts off. In fact, will I just read the blurb? Yes, give us the blurb, yeah, Dave. What the does the back cover now, have to tell us? What I'm going to do, listeners, I'm going to read the original hardcover blurb, then I'll read the blurb from the, the Monster Collection reprint. Oh, that's good. Um, You're prepared, I like it. You should, were you in the which, scouts? It was, actually. That's there why I shake Typical. hands with the left hand, listeners, <laughs> if you ever meet me in real life. Um, so, yes, the blurb from the back of our Johnny Morris's Touched by an Angel. The past is like a foreign country, a nice place to visit, but you really wouldn't want to live there. In 2003, Rebecca Whittaker died in a road accident. Her husband, Mark, is still grieving. He receives a battered envelope, posted eight years ago, containing a set of instructions with a simple message. You can save her. As Mark is given the chance to save Rebecca, it's up to the doctor, Amy and Rory, to save the whole world, because this time the weeping angels are using history itself as a weapon. And a little sub bit of text tells us a thrilling all new adventure featuring the Doctor Amy Nori as played by Matt Smith, Karen Gillan and Arthur Darville in a spectacular hit series from BBC Television so this play would have been published midway between um, Matt's second series for further context. Yes. The back cover blurb for the Monster Collection reprint is exactly the same so I don't have to read it out That's Yay. Really it's not like um, a morality tale when it was slightly different so yes. there we go That's slightly different yes yeah, so yeah Mark um, Mark's wife dies in a car crash um, that sort of happens at the start of the book we meet Mark um, and his letter arrives you know, with, with, the, with, with some money and all that sort of stuff as well and before too long Mark gets zapped himself by a weeping angel and sent back to the early 90s around about the time that his younger self is attending uni and about to meet well first meeting um, Rebecca, who would become his wife, so it's it's interesting. It's um, again a little bit um, you know, roughly ten years older and ten years dumber. <laughs> uh, I was kind of reminded of stuff like, you know, the time traveler's wife, um, which is what Stephen Moffat's whole River Song thing seems to be, you know, completely based on his whole Doctor approach seems to be based on, but Johnny's able to do it without the inappropriate humour. <laughs> I was sort of struck by how good Johnny captured the Mark's whole grieving process without making it seem cloying or uncomfortable or, you know, over the top. Your your sympathies are with Mark completely all the way through the book. You really hope he's going to succeed, but at the same time, you know, you're aware of the dangers. In fact, Mark's really the focus of it. At times, it, it almost reads a bit like a, a Dr. Light episode in mm-hmm. a way. Maybe not one as as like Blink where they're not the Doctor and Martha Annan very much but maybe something like The Long Game where they don't have as many scenes as some of the other characters you know that's very yeah. much Adam's episode and you know the Doctor and Amy and Rory are almost peripheral to a lot of it in fact the, my, the one criticism that I mentioned actually earlier on is I think Amy kind of out of the three echoes gets the least the least to do and that's a bit of a shame there's some brilliant stuff with Rory as I say I've already mentioned page 110 and the, the later page and the Doctor is captured Perfectly, it really made me. It reminded me of what I felt the first time. How much I really knew I was going to miss Matt Smith because he was, you know, he's. It reminded me just why he was my favourite. The new Doctors. I think it's yeah. It's got such a good emotional core, and we'll hear shortly from Johnny as to as to why that is because it it does come from sadly from a place of loss. 
and you know he understands it. He understands the emotion. It's emotionally mature. Very that's, much. That's so. very much. Which you I'll, don't always get in a Doctor Who book. And you don't always. You didn't always get emotional maturity in a lot of the stuff in the TV series at that time. I mean, I'm. I'm. I know I'm very critical of a lot of Stephen Moffat's approaches. But this, to me, as I've said, well, this was a Stephen Moffat approach, but done properly without puerile, you know, jokes or an appropriate innuendo. It was all very adult, very discreet with a lot of the humour. And all the characters are painted really, really well, really, really broadly. And as I say, I, re- I remember at the time resenting, the first time I read it, resenting having to sleep and go to work. <laughs> I was able to sit at home last Wednesday or Thursday night, whenever it was, and just read it in one go because I didn't mean to do that night. That night, so it's um, it's it's a masterpiece to be honest. It's Johnny also wrote my a couple of my absolute favourite Big Finish releases, like The Curse of Davros, is is my favourite Six Doctor story. It's one of my absolute favourite Big Finishes. He also did We Are the Daleks, which just evokes season twenty four like nothing else. Johnny's one of these people, and I hope he's not too embarrassed if he listens to this. He's one of these people. He's a bit like Grant Morrison or Mark Wade as comic book writers, and he completely understands what works and what doesn't work about this, the the unit, fictional universe or the medium that he's working in, and he can distill the key core elements that make this particular thing work, be it an 11th Doctor story or a 7th Doctor story, and create something new with them that never feels derivative or ungenuine, if that's a word. Disingenuous? Um, probably. That's not, that's what I've only ever read and never said out loud. <laughs> but I, this book is amazing. It's, it's one to cherish and one to treasure. If you've, never, if you've never read it before, listeners, I would actively encourage you to seek it out. Why don't we hand over to the man what wrote it and hear what he has to say about how it all came to be in one of our longest interviews of the season. Hello, I'm Jonathan Morris and well over 13 years ago, I think I wrote Doctor Who, Touched by an Angel. Fantastic. Welcome to The Power of Three. Do you remember how the commission for this one came about and the fact you were handed the angels? Uh, Yeah, I've been researching, looking at my notes of that. I think I was emailed by Justin Richards, the editor of the range, about submitting an idea. And I submitted this document I have in front of me now, which is five ideas, which I'm looking at and is going, number five is one I've never done yet, which is pretty cool. Number four is the story which became Maelstrom, the big finished story. Number three is absolute rubbish <laughs> and idea number two is the paradox man which is about a man who was um sent back in time to uh, be alongside his own past and idea one is closed circuit which is about creatures that live in they're inside video recordings which sort of stalk people through closed circuit cameras and uh, Justin got back to me and said, I like ideas one and two about um, idea one. About, it was about a sort of spooky Bill, the first ever sort of ventriloquist dummy that appeared on television. He said he liked that idea about the, the thing in the, in the TVs and he liked the idea about the, the guy being sent back into his own past 20 years to live alongside his own past, trying to avoid causing time paradoxes. And I think it was his idea to go, can you put those two together? because neither of them were quite big enough for a novel. Oh, and you can have the Weeping Angels, if you'd like. 
because uh, I obviously I didn't pitch an idea for the weeping with the weeping angels, but with that idea of going, oh, it's the weeping angels that send the guy back in time. That's really simple, and they're the ones who are trying to make him cause a time paradox because they can feed on the time energy that's coming out of it or something. I think I call it the Blinovich energy or something. And that fitted really well, and the, the thing inside the cameras worked really well, just as the sort of the opening couple of chapters. Because it was an idea I'd had of going, what can I do for a sort of spooky short film? And the idea of someone just being stalked by something which only ever appears on the... You know when you go into, like, um, uh, to buy a Chinese or something, and you're standing at the counter, and you see the monitor, and you can see yourself from above. And I was just going, wouldn't it be freaky if there was a little sort of sort of scary sort of little, little ventriloquist on me standing behind you. Then you can see on the screen, but you can't see when you turn. It's not there anymore. So it's that sort of idea. And so I then went away and um, did a lot of preparation and did a proper synopsis, which is pretty much as the same as the, the finished book, I think. It might have had a couple more sections in it. And yeah, it got commissioned. So it's very exciting. And I think I was given about maybe eight weeks or two months to write it. So quite fast as well. I was just thinking that's a very, very quick turnaround considering you normally get what, four, five months, something like that for the BBC. It used to be. It's got. It's getting shorter each time. <laughs> and this, this was a particularly tricky one because I was writing the Doctor Magazine comic strip at the time. I was doing the fact of fiction features for the magazine at the time. And I was doing big finish stuff at the time. And I also, you know, doing my own sort of things, my own pitches and stuff. So it was a very full on couple of months of, you know, doing one one Doctor Who story in the day and another one in the evening and then another one in my sleep <laughs> and then waking up and starting again. So um, it, it doesn't matter really because before it was before I started writing, I had a lot of thinking time about it, and it was all fairly sort of. If you're writing something which requires a huge amount of research, like something which is set in history, that really does make things more difficult. But because, as as I'll go on to say, this is all from personal experience, it was fairly straightforward to write. Yeah, I think that's the thing that we were saying before we started that this is my favourite Doctor Who book and I will unashamedly put that on the records. I normally don't have favourites but in this one it's the one that I most got. I think it's just having been at uni in the 90s just it's there's so much relatable content so was that something you found that this is possibly the work that's the most personal to you putting a lot of your sort of your life experiences in here I'd imagine because so much of what we see through the eyes of Mr Whitaker is uh, what has perhaps been through the eyes of Mr. Morris? Yes and no. Certainly because I couldn't be bothered to do much research. I just went, okay, he went to the same university that I did. Um, but even then I had to research it because I was going, I can't remember the name of um, the bars or the nightclubs or um, which night was indie night or whatever. Because a lot of my memories of what it was turned out to be wrong. So I found on the, on the internet some people who were students at the same time as me had posted their diaries or uh, home movie footage and stuff of their time at university. So uh, even stuff which ostensibly is from my own life uh, required research. So that was quite close, even to the point where when Mark Whitaker was being chased out of the students' union by the Weeping Angels, 
he's taken the route back to the halls of residence that I took, you know, when I was sort of like very, very drunk after um, a, a night at the the, the the club or whatever, at the student tune. So that was quite sort of close to life. And the trip to Rome was, because I'd been to Rome a year or so earlier with, my, with Debbie, uh, my wife. And so obviously I'd been to all those places. And again, the, the route that Whitaker takes when he runs, he's chasing the guy's neck, his wallet or whatever, is a route that you can take. You can go to Rome and you can you can do the, the touch by an angel uh, walking tour. So I got all that sort of stuff. The, the way it's personal, though, I suppose, is exorcising a couple of demons, because although I did have a good time at Warwick University, I also in some ways didn't have a good time and it's always kind of haunted me and writing this book made me sort of think about that time a lot and it certainly laid a lot of those demons to rest my brother died around 2000 ish and um then about a year later i split up with my long-term girlfriend <laughs> and although it's not quite the same i wouldn't would not put them in the same sort of anywhere near the same degree. But if you split up with someone, it's a bit like a bereavement. There's there's some similar feelings. It's obviously nowhere near as extreme, but, um, you know, you, you, you do go through some of the same, the same processes. But I would also say that Mark is nothing like me, and his wife, Rebecca, is nothing, absolutely nothing, like my ex-girlfriend, and wasn't based on her in any way whatsoever, because... That would be weird. <laughs> you use stuff in your life, but it's, it wasn't. It isn't actually using it in terms of this happened and I wrote it down. It's in the sense of how did I feel though, or the emotions I went through. You know, even in the bit with the wedding, it's like, okay, when I got married, how did it feel? What was my headspace and so on. So certainly, when um, Mark learns about his wife dying, it was very much from my sort of experience of going. Oh, when you suffer a bereavement or you've been dumped by a girlfriend or whatever, you go through that process of going, um, but we were fine you know, yesterday, and that's really close. That's, that seems so close, you go, that's, that's basically you know, in the next room, that's not a long way away. Can't I get back there? Can't I even you know, just get back five minutes before the phone call? Can I get, you know, so that's a very personal. What happens is you, because you're writing a story which is not about your life you can put your personal emotions into it because I'm, I'm a great believer in the, in the idea that um, what when you're writing a book what you put into it what you're feeling at the time is what the what the reader should get out of it and if I had been sitting there you know very cool and calculating and just sort of writing it just in just thinking it and not feeling it I think it would have um been quite flat but as it was i know from writing that that those chapters where she where she he learns she's dying that i was writing with tears streaming down my cheeks absolutely sobbing you know like at the beginning of romancing the stone i was exactly like that. <laughs> um you know absolutely sort of you know really wringing it out on myself putting it on the page as it were and then i'd show what i've written to um debbie and she'd be like crushed and devastated as well because she'd been reading each chapter as it came along and when when i when she read it and she was 
obviously had eyes that could be red and just, you know, she's been crying a lot. I was going, oh yeah, that's good. It works. Yes, <laughs> it's it's there. There is something I've got. There's something there. You definitely achieved that. I was. That's exactly how I felt. I just my heart went out to him. It and uh, oh, painful, putting me through the ringer. Um, so how did you find writing for this Doctor Amy and of course Rory, with and without Faze? Yeah, yeah, they, they are in it. <laughs> Tangentially, um, they, they are in it slightly. I really found that really sort of easy. I think um, I was still very much on a sort of a comedy writing sort of train, and I might not be a writer in the same league as uh, Stephen Moffat, but I can pastiche him pretty well. If there's another talented writer who's done all of the stuff before me, I can rip them off really well. That's like a skill I have. I can be a chameleon. So I uh, enjoyed that a lot, particularly, you know, focusing more on Rory because uh, he's more of a knowable character, I think, whereas, you know, the Doctor's more mysterious and Amy is... Uh, quite mixed up, quite complicated. So yeah, I mean, my main memory of that is, I think there's a sort of a running gag about the Doctor keeps thinking of funny words and getting Rory to write them down, because <laughs> he th- he's decided that Rory is now his secretary. <laughs> um, I mean, my memory afterwards is there was a, um, the TV show, the, um, the Angels in Manhattan one, and watching that and sort of being so anxious, <laughs> going, what's Rory's reaction going to be when he sees a weeping angel? And it fitted. It didn't contradict my book, and I was so pleased. I don't know if they, if Stephen did that deliberately or he just happened by accident. I think it was probably almost certainly by accident. It all fitted together, and it's like sometimes I don't mind if a TV show sort of contradicts what I've written. But in this case, it was so close. You know, my book had only just come out. It was still on the shelves. It was still being advertised at the end of the TV show that I didn't want it to be um, just <laughs> Falling into the into the void of not countingness uh, by a TV episode so straight so so early on. That's my memory of that. Yeah, you must have had great fun just dropping in and revisiting the nineties at different times as as we drop in throughout his life. Before writing, I did this. What I don't normally do is um, for the uh, main characters, for Mark and Rebecca, I wrote like complete biographies of their lives, like every year what happened to them that year. What happened to their friends from university? All that stuff. I mean, there's a whole there was a whole subplot in there about one of their friends from university coming out and another one having mental health problems and stuff, which didn't get used. But it's all sort of it was all there in terms of there were scenes where I've written it and I know where that count is going to be in five years' time, even if we never that bit of the book either didn't get written or I I wrote it and cut it. So and also for every sort of period where um, the book was set, I sort of went, okay, what was on TV at the time? What was in the cinema? What was in the charts? What sort of ephemera from that time period can I sort of throw in there to jog people's memories? Even to the point, I mean, I think when I sort of sent it out to people to read before submission, people like, you know, there's a list of them at the back, people like Simon Gary and stuff. They all got back to me with the same note, basically, which was, um, it's really good, Johnny, but can you please cut down all the all the references to um, stuff that's going on? Which I, I was I was a bit reluctant about because I think if you had been thrown back in time, 
those are the things you're going to notice. Those are going to be the things that stick with odd. That, like I think at one point Mark gets onto an underground train and he notices all the seats of these free newspapers up, which are everywhere at the time. And now you would never see one. Or when he's walking and he sees uh, Curry Wharf and it's just one tower. I mean, anyone who lives in that area of London now, now I was, at the time I was living in sort of Blackheathy, Lewisham area, the idea of it being one tower would be really odd. Because that's, that's the part of the book where he goes to see, uh, I think, his, his, one of his parents who's, um, who subsequently dies, which was another sort of really tough part of the book. At the time I wrote it, both my parents were alive. I don't think I could go back and read it because <laughs> it would be too painful. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, so I wrote all these different things. And so in my head, when I, I, know, I know there's a bit of the book where uh, Mark is just driving across London and I mentioned he turns on the radio and it's, and it's um, overload by um, Sugar Babes is on. And then he passes a sign for the, the general election at the time, the 2001 general election. And for that, like I was having to research going, what were the posters for that election? Because no one remembers it. You know, I think it was William Hague was the leader of opposition or something. Um, and throwing all those things in. And then when I did the second draft, I took over half of them out. And people even now we didn't go, this has a lot of pop cultural references in it. And I'm going, you didn't read the version where he walked through the shopping center and it was the cutouts of the Teletubbies and the cutouts of the Spice Girls and every single shop was named and stuff. And, mm -hmm. Because I think Dixon's and Woolworth survived to make it to the to the final cut. I can't remember, but I, I know um, at one point they, they say goodbye to uh, Mark outside of the Safeway supermarket. Yep. And I was going, that's good, because they, they've gone bankrupt. They can't, I can happily mention them as much as I like, because that brand does not exist in the UK anymore. Nope. And again, that was one of the thought, sort of things that go to trigger the memories of to go, if I'd said it was a Tesco's supermarket, people would imagine a, a supermarket as it is now. But if you use those old brands, if they, you have them going into Tower Records or R Price or something, people are already sort of sent back into the, to the 1990s. So yeah, I had a, a lot of fun with that. Try and because obviously it's in my life, it was much more vivid than you would normally imagine these things. So I imagine that's the same for quite a lot of the readers that can go, Oh, I know what I was doing in you know, 1997. Yeah, oh, totally. And um, just thinking, you said, as soon as you said Safeway there, everything you want from a store and a little bit more, or, or, or I won't try and sing it. That would just be too much. Um, oh, God, that was, that, was, that was another thing. It was um, adverts. Yes. So I, I, I think I had a, I don't know, what's the guy's name? The, um, uh, my Kind of People guy advertising. I think it was Kit Kats. And so whenever the TV would come on, it would be, what, what were the adverts? So, so I, I, I got this huge document, you know, it's about of everything that happened in their lives, everything that's happening, culturally, everything that's happening in politics and the news. But a lot of, a huge amount of that were taken out or didn't even get written because you were sort of, I was sort of trying to avoid too much of that sort of thing where you're in a novel and, you, and, and, you know, it's, um, it's his Princess Diana's funeral is going on in the background or something, or uh, it's always a bit slightly sort of cheesy. If every sort of if, if every part of their lives had been tied into a, a famous event, it'd been too much, I think. This was the first time that somebody other than Stephen had written for the Angels. So how did you find bringing them to life in print? 
I don't know if they'd already turned up in some short stories then, because there's a there was a huge amount of Doctor Who literature being written around then, uh, you know, for various comics and collections and stuff. Impossible to keep track of it, so I don't know. But um, I found them an absolute horror, <laughs> really difficult, absolute pain in the ass. Because I can imagine, I can imagine really cool bits of them. I mean, there's, I know the bits now where they're sort of clinging to the roof of the train uh, in the when there's in the nightclub, and then the likes of the strobing. So you can start to see them move with the strobing effect, or um, in the, the churchyard at the wedding, and all these different bits. Or you know, when he's running across the field at night and they're looming out of the darkness. So I could imagine all the scenes with them brilliantly, as though they were happening on you know on TV or in a film or something, but writing them is that absolute sod as it were because in text you're writing in terms of things happening you know it's, it's one of the things that was i learned very early on as a writer is you don't write uh, he was sitting down you write he sat down you know you describe an action rather than a state but with weeping angels they don't move that the weeping angel lunged towards him you can't do that because they don't move. So you're stuck with all these sort of the weeping. He turned. The weeping angel was lunging towards him. Or I mean, it's, it's a ridiculous thing. Going, he turned and looked with horror as the monster failed to move towards him. It was completely still. <laughs> it did absolutely nothing. And you sort of so it was very very difficult to try and make them scary or threatening. And I, I did have some fun with uh, creating up this this sort of little bit of a backstory for them that they were created during the time war as um, these sort of parasites of time as it were because I was trying to think of any sort of rationale of where they could have come from is kind of baffling in itself so there's a little bit of that but it's all done in this sort of caveats going according to myth according to according to ancient legends and you sort of go well you know if someone else writes another story that contradicts that I'm fine. It doesn't matter. The legends are Oh, that's fantastic. So how was the actual writing process itself? Was it quite, well, obviously you mentioned uh, getting quite emotional, getting the certain things onto the printed page. So how did it go as you were working through it? Was it quite, was it quite a rewarding, enjoyable one to do? Yes. I mean, because it was all, I was, I think what really motivated me with this, the sense I had a good story and because it would have weeping angels on the front that people would buy the book in hopefully huge numbers. Um, so it's a chance to get noticed, isn't it? And I, my thinking was, well, if I'm going to write a book, which is people going to buy? I want to make sure it's not just the best one I can possibly do, but I'm going to... So I set myself the task of going, well, everyone says that, you know, the human nature by Paul Cornell is the best original Doctor Who novel. And so I just sort of sat down each time going, well, I'm going to write a better than that. You know, I'm going to knock that one off the perch. I'm going to beat, you know, alien bodies or whatever. You know, get Lance Park in. Because <laughs> I, I was going, well, I think I'm, there's no point in sort of going, I'm going to try and write a, you know, seven out of 10 book because you will end up writing a seven out of 10 book. I was going, well, I'm going to write the best one I can possibly do. Because I was, I was also I was thinking about human nature. They had put that on television. It was so good, you know, that they went well. This this book is no longer. <laughs> this book is actually 
not too broad and deep for the small screen after all. It was exactly <laughs> the right size for the small screen. So I, I did have that sort of thought in the back of my mind. But, you know, you sometimes these sort of little pipe dreams are just sort of there to... Are, are lovely sort of thoughts. I mean, they, they, I mean they, they still could put it on television. I don't know. They don't need to even ask my permission. They don't even need to tell me. They could do it tomorrow. <laughs> uh, maybe when they've run out of comic strips to adapt. <laughs> so but anyway, that was, that was my thing. So I was really enjoying it. I loved the wedding because that was a complete tonal shift when it went from this sort of love story and it becomes a Richard Curtis movie. You know, it becomes absolutely oak of the wedding dress getting ruined by a lorry and they pop into the TARDIS. They come up with a complete, complete one and, you know, it's, it's having a lot of fun with it. So I loved that. I mean, and... The only sort of trouble I had writing it was a, there's a section later on, I think, where uh, where Mark's uh, house in Hampstead burns down after the Weeping Angels have appeared at the window, you know, and it begins to crack. That's another really cool bit. And Rory is sent back in time, and there's a really complicated bit in terms of where the uh, note on psychic paper came from. Really difficult. And I absolutely flush it. I have this ridiculous moment where where Amy points out the problem and going, but how how would the weeping angels get hold of psychic paper? And the doctor says something, oh, that would be child's play to creatures as powerful as this. <laughs> that makes no sense. That doesn't answer the question. So I assume they went to, you know, the to the psychic sort of stationery store, the, the psychic Rymans, and they bought some psychic paper. So, so that was a horrible, complicated bit to write. And then I got this note from Justin going, he didn't like it. And he was going, can you do it like this instead, where Rory was sent back. I think Rory, Rory wasn't sent back in time, and can you do it like this and like this? And I was sort of going, but that doesn't make sense. That won't work. But I thought, well, I'm happy to be wrong. I'll try it. And so I rewrote those two chapters uh, according to um, Justin's notes and said, and tried to make it work. And I, I sent it off to him going, I've done it, see what you think. And he just emailed back going, no, no, actually the first version was better. But I think because I'd put, you know, three or four days work in trying to make it work the other way. Mm -hmm. it, and after I'd done that, I went back and rewrote what I wrote again to make it clear and make it all make sense. So hopefully it does all make sense now. But uh, sometimes when you're given a note which you disagree with, you have to give it a go and then you can show the person going i don't think it works but that's not my opinion this is an evidence of me showing you how i of me trying to make it work and how that creates a whole load of other problems and that was the, that was the problem with it that it created a whole load of other continuity errors uh, because although it seems quite hopefully it seems quite simple that it is one of those stories where if something happens in the wrong order you know or someone knows something they shouldn't know then the whole thing is sort of thrown out, even though even though it is quite sort of simple and episodic, yeah. So yeah, that's what. I, but also, I wrote it incredibly quickly, as I said, with other things going on. So while I'm thinking about it, I, sh I should mention the other sort of influence, which <laughs> is there's a novel called um, One Day by David Nichols, which tells the story of a love story over twenty years, which ends in a very emotional fashion shall we say and i read that and i loved it and i thought it was brilliant and the only thing i took from that is the idea of just telling a love story in visitations 
where you meet a couple and then you see them again a couple years later and a couple years later. So you're getting all these scenes from their love story, as it were. One day has the trick where it's the same day every year. But obviously the characters are completely different. The, the situations can be different. But it, it comes from partly me reading one day and at the end going, oh, I wish you had the time machine at the end and go back and go back and fix things and prevent all the bad things from happening. Which is what Crash by an Angel is about, really. It's about what if Doctor Who turned up in one day, as it were. I was in the pub and Jenny Colgan told me, she's going, she goes, Johnny, Johnny, I, I met David Nichols and I said that they've made your, listen, you've made, they've made your book into a Doctor Who story. And I was going, oh God, please don't tell him. Please <laughs> don't tell him. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not plagiarism, it's not, you know, but it's, um, you know, I, I'm quite happy to say that it was a, it was an inspiration. But there's yeah, nothing in terms of anything that happens in it, which is remotely similar. Because obviously, like I said, it's all it's all taken from my own life anyway. So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, this book got such a great reaction from you know amongst my friends. We were talking about it and having had a quick look online for some reviews over the last few days. Great reviews for it. That must have been so pleasing for you to know that something you put so much into went down so well and other people could relate to it yeah i know it went down really well i don't really remember this, but that's good that's healthy you know uh treat those two imposters the same uh, success and failure so uh i was glad that it went down well disappointed that it didn't end up on television i remember one of my friends being quite cross because uh, he thought i'd nicked his idea but I hadn't because uh, the idea of going back in time and seeing your younger self on the day that you meet the person you're gonna gonna marry or whatever is you know it's from um, a Christmas Carol. It goes all the way back to that. It goes back to Scrooge seeing his younger self at the school and seeing him splitting up with Dora uh, or whatever she's called. And so it's all Nick from Christmas Carol anyway. So I remember that. Um, I remember getting a weird email out of the blue from a, a 10-year-old boy saying, I think this is the best Doctor Who story I've ever read. Yours sincerely, Louis Moffat, which was which was lovely because his dad had given his son my email address. And I was like, oh, thank you, thank you, Louis. That's, that's really nice. Um, if your father wants to put it on television at any point, <laughs> I'd be only too happy. But that, that was sort of lovely that the book had found its way into the Moffat household, as it were. And yeah, sort of, I, I just, I mean, it was, it was lovely and it was, um, and it sold quite well. And I think that um, I got asked back, which is always the sort of thing you can tell, because um, I think this this was my first Doctor Who book for a long time since, you know, since the eighth Doctor once. So I had sort of, you know, grumbled a little bit about not being asked earlier. But I understand why they didn't ask me earlier. It's because the Toro windows was incredibly late and they didn't want authors who were going to be handing books incredibly late. They wanted hand, authors who going to hand them on on time. Uh, so with um, Touch by an Angel, I handed it in early to go, look, look, I can do it on time. I can be a professional. I'm grown up. You know, and the same with um, uh, Plague City and stuff. I, you hand them in on the deadline and you realize that's the secret. That's the trick to getting asked back. It's actually reducing it, making it very, very um, stress-free for everyone else involved. 
I'm, I'm pleased to have gone. I'm still sort of pleased now when people sort of turn up at things and ask me to sign it. That's that's nice. And um, I think I saw a, a couple of months ago with some people on some Twitter thread or something were, were discussing their favorite sort of Doctor Who stuff. And they were talking about it as though, oh, there was this great book when I was a kid called Touch by an Angel, and it was so sort of moving and exciting. And I, I'm sort of going, but I only wrote that a couple of years ago. That's quite recent for me. <laughs> and then you sort of realize, oh, God, no, it was, you know, it was you know, 12, 13 years ago. And people who were reading that when they were like 10 are now like middle-aged. <laughs> <laughs> so that's 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 really nothing as well, that it's, it's remembered. Um, because, you know, there's so much stuff, like I said, so much stuff has been put out about them. And I wanted to, to create something which would would sort of be noticed and remembered, and I'm glad it has. You mentioned earlier that uh, you got adverts after the TV show, so that must have been quite a little buzz in the way that when we were watching the show, sort of like, and there's a Doctor Who exhibition currently at Longleat and in Blackpool. So you kind of, got, kind of got the 21st century version of that, and you got a reprint as well. Yeah, I mean, um, the advert after the TV show, I can't remember which episode it was. I think I think I might have that on DVD or somewhere. I might have burned it somewhere. You know, hopefully they'll, they'll bring it out on the Blu-ray with all the extras. I mean, it'd be lovely if it had been done, done as a sort of a C-Fax graphic, you know, like the old, <laughs> the old sort of C-Fax Dalek that would oh, turn love those. Know, Tom Baker stories and stuff. That was lovely. I'm not sure it had huge effect on sales, but uh, it was lovely. And I think uh, there were things like... Um, this might be wrong, but as I remember it, the, the BBC Worldwide, whatever, would occasionally have these sort of like um, conferences for the licensees, and they'd give them these goodie bags of all the best stuff they'd produced that year, and it was in one of those goodie bags, as this is what BBC Books is, is really happy about this year. So that was nice. It's been printed by BBC Books. It's been printed in a special leather-bound edition in the United States, uh, doubled up with... Um, Dan Abnett's book. It's been published in German, Spanish, Chinese, uh, Russian, and um, it was translated into French, but it hasn't come out in France yet, because uh, I know because the French translator emailed me a lot of questions about uh, what is the Chinese restaurant called, because you change the name after three pages. And so when it is reprinted, that's the one thing I fixed. Going that Chinese restaurant's name changing was a cock up in the original book. And who knows? There may even be more editions. It's the, the last one only came out last year. Uh, Italy, Italy was the last one. Italy had its own cover as well. Well, well worth collecting. I think any true fan has to have the whole set. And plus, there was a an audio reading by um, Claire Corbett, I think, uh, where. I was there for the second day of the recording, which was which was lovely because um, it was all the really moving bits at the end. I sit there and cry again, listen to them, and go, "This is this is beautiful," and she's really getting into it, and it's really working. And also, if anyone would ever be so bored as to compare the audio version to the book, the audio version actually does fix quite a few of the other continuity errors and bits of really bad writing. So it could be just because in the studio, you know. She'd say something and go, "This doesn't make sense." I go, "Oh God, it no, it doesn't. It's too late to do it. <laughs> fix it now, but we'll fix it for the um, for the talking book." So she did a great job with that, and 
I'm not sure if there's been any um, overseas talking books. But BBC Books are supposed to, to let me know about these things and send me copies of everything. Mm-hmm. So over there, I've got a copy of 19 copies of the German edition. <laughs> Because I can't give them away. No one wants German editions of the books. I don't know any German people or enough German ah. people to, to get rid of them. So, um, but yeah, it's a, a the Italian one. Is it? Um, or is it the Spanish one? Has a different cover. So that's that's an essential purchase for all who thinks. Oh, definitely, definitely is. I should ask Johnny: Are you willing to do personal guided tours of the locations in Rome if somebody wants to pay you like ten grand and cover your flights and accommodation? Uh, yes, yeah. I mean, most of the places in the book are on the tourist map. I think um, the, the Trevi Fountain is not like a sort of <laughs> unknown place. But like I said, the route that they take when he's chasing the guy's wallet is a route you can take. The hotel they stay in, I know where that is in my head. It's just along from the Colosseum. And the museum they go to, because of, I mean, what is the, it's just a funny thing of in the museum with full of statues and the weeping angels hide among the statues of like Roman emperors and stuff that's you know that's very easy to find <laughs> so yeah I'd be happy to give guided tours I have, I'd give guided tours of um uh, the Warwick University campus if anyone wants that I think um Croydon High Street is at the beginning I think anyone wants to <laughs> go along Croydon High Street with me um village church where the wedding takes place I know where that is in my head that's the church weirdly where my um my grandparents had died and um Alan say so yeah it, it, everywhere is sort of a real place and it's i think the place in blackheath he visits is a uh, again it's a place I, I would go past on my runs and stuff and go okay that can be uh the house where his parents lived so yeah it's a uh, you could you could do it i, I don't think it'd be very interesting but um and i wouldn't do it but uh when people have got bored with having their photo taken, you know, in front of uh, the Roldal place in Cardiff and stuff, there are more Doctor Who locations to find in the books. <laughs> Johnny, thank you so much for your time and uh, and sharing how my favourite Doctor Who book ever came to life. Thank you. It's, it's been uh, uh, lovely talking about it. it is, uh, yeah, that, that one turned out quite well. Very happy with that. So there we go. What a fantastic insight. Thank you to Johnny for that. I mean, yes. I mean, I love the fact that he says that um, he's very good at aping other writers and doing things in their style. And I think he's putting himself down a bit when he says that he's doing it in their style and trying to be like them. I think, as Dave says, there's moments when Johnny is better than the people he's Well, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes there's a cover version that's better than the original. Yeah. Like, Give us your favourite cover version. Like, well, my favourite cover version of all time is... There are two. There's like an inch, mill, a couple of mils between okay. them. The Holly's version of the Bob Dylan song, My Back Pages, okay. which I first heard when I was 32 in a free CD from an issue of Mojo, which I can grab and show the our YouTube viewers. Two seconds. There we go. Dave's now going across his living room here in Steel Towers. Not Ivory Towers, but Steel Towers. There we go. We've got it here. It's got a picture of Bob Dylan. Looks like he's got a, like he's holding up an invisible weight. He's you holding like up a, do. He's holding up an invisible copy of Touched by an Angel by Johnny Morris, an invisible copy of Sting of the Zygons by Steve Cole. Oh, there we go. <laughs> it's also got the Flying Burrito Brothers, brothers Nancy Sinatra, John Martin, The Stands, Roger McGinn, Fairport so, Convention, and more. It's a fantastic CD. And this version of the Hollies doing the Bob Dylan song was track two on it. But the, my other favourite 
favourite is the Love Affairs cover of Everlasting Love. Now, most people know that as the original, but it had previously been released by a guy called Robert Knight, and a good cover version. Um, another, my other one, which is always very controversial, upsets people, is when I say that I think the Frankie Goes to Hollywood version of Born to Run is better than the Bruce Springsteen one. Discuss. Anyway, Johnny Cena's AP, a good cover version takes the original and whilst being completely true to the spirit of it can rework it and just make it something bigger and broader and the Hollies version of my back pages when I first heard it was just like it was a distillation of everything I liked about music and because I love the band and I love the song and I love the arrangement and it's amazing and you know what listen a couple of weeks ago I was working for the Hollies and I got to talk to Bobby Elliott who played drums on my single favourite recorded thing in history recorded music which is the Hollies version of my back pages in it marvellous what's yours Kenny? bet you can guess is it where the streets have no name but the Pet Shop Boys? No, it's not, because I'm not a big fan. I, I mean, I like it. I think it's far better than the original, because it loses is all it the pomposity. Is it always on my mind? But it, it is! Yes, of course it is! Of course Christmas it is. 87, number one. Great track. Yes, Great well, track. I, that's, another, that's another top five, because it's so different. I mean, the Elvis one is wonderful, but it's a bit cheesy and corny, whereas the Pet Shop Boys just takes it. And very, you know, actually... I think the Pet Shop Boys version of Always In My Mind is probably closest in spirit to the, the, the Holly's version of My Back Pages in that it is so different from the original in its arrangement and stylings, but it just does not misrepresent it in any way whatsoever. So, Dave, given that I don't have a copy of the audiobook version, right. which is read by Claire Corbett, sure. why don't we have our own unique version read by <laughs> David Steele? Yes, with me, without me trying, trying not to laugh as I get to the funny bit and probably overselling it completely. So, listeners... One of the things that takes place is that um, Mark, in his letter, is given a, a list of things, points in his life which he's got to sort of interfere with positively to you know affect the outcome. And one of the, these things is Mark's wallet gets stolen. So they have to try and get his wallet back because it gets handed into the hotel. So this is basically... Um, so the Doctor, Amy, Rory and older Mark are watching... Mark, younger Mark and Rebecca and basically his wallet's about to be stolen so picking up at the bottom page 108 Rory edged forward to get a better look he could see the wallet bulging in the young man's back pocket but he couldn't see how it could accidentally fall out until he noticed a thin seedy looking teenager sidling through the crowd the only person there not to be gazing in wonder at the statue of Oceanus without breaking his stride the teenager lifted the wallet from young Mark's pocket and walked casually away towards where they were sitting the doctor gave Rory a nod. In a few seconds, the thief would be within reach. Rory psyched himself up to grab him, but then the thief noticed that they were looking at him. He launched himself into a run, shoving them both out of his way. Rory turned to see the teenager skidding down a side street. Without thinking, Rory sprinted after him, giving a yell of, Stop, thief! Around him, the tourist gawped on in amusement. Rory turned down a side street to see the teenager knocking aside any bystanders that impeded his progress. Ahead of him, a Fiat blocked the entire width of the street. The teenager didn't slow down. He simply leapt onto the car's bonnet, ran across its roof and jumped to the ground, making his escape. Without pausing to think, Rory scrambled over the car after him, trying his best to ignore the blast from the horn and the barrage of insults from the driver. The teenager darted down another side street, glancing back to see if he'd lost his pursuer. He hadn't. After landing heavily on the tarmac, Rory redoubled his speed, ignoring the stitch in his side. He chased the teenager through a number of increasingly narrow alleyways, if not by sight, then by the sound of the teenager's heels. The next alleyway ended at a flight of steps. The teenager had already climbed 20 or so of the steps, but Rory didn't give up. Groaning with the effort, Rory raced after him. The steps were incredibly steep, rising up over the rooftops, and just when Rory thought they might go on forever, they ended at a car park. 
the teenager dashed over to a motor scooter, but before he could turn the ignition, Rory lunged at him, knocking both the thief and his scooter to the ground. In the struggle that followed, Rory prized the thief's fingers apart and wrenched the wallet out of his grip. Then the teenager shoved Rory aside and, shouting expletives, scurried into the distance. Rory lay on the tarmac, his chest heaving, until he heard the doctor jogging up the stairs after him. Well done, said the doctor, helping him to his feet. You've just saved the entire space-time continuum. Great, said Rory, with little enthusiasm, handing him the wallet. The doctor examined it and shook his head. But I'm afraid it's the wrong wallet. What? Only joking, beamed the doctor. It's the right wallet. Your face. The doctor adjusted his bow tie, feeling terribly pleased with himself. Now we have to deliver it to Mark's hotel. That's superb. Can you imagine it on telly? Yes. How good that would have been, just Matt going, yeah. Any trouble? It's the wrong one. And a cut to a close up of Arthur just going, yeah. What? Only joking. <laughs> you know, I loved it. Yes. Howled. Absolutely roared for about 20 minutes on the Reddit last yeah. week. I just wish um, Jamie Dudman would record it. Yes. That would be good. Now, there's another lesser moment on page 191 when the two Rory's and listeners, we're not going to spoil it completely. Maybe we should spoil it completely. No, but well, anyway, it's already been mentioned into that there's two roles. Right. So, reading from page 191. It was a weird feeling to be in the same room as your future self. This is obviously from Rory's point of view. That person over there with a the surprisingly large nose and gormless face would be him at some point. Staring back at his past self, who as far as Rory was concerned was his current self. Which was confusing if he thought about it. So Rory decided to stop thinking about it. Completely necessary, said the doctor, closing Sonic's screwdriver with a flourish. It's now safe for you both to be in the same room together. Eh? said Rory. The doctor went into explanation mode. Blinovich limitation effect. Two identical versions of the same person at different points in their timeline should not coexist in the same space and time. All sorts of nasty potential for paradoxes. And if they should happen to make physical contact, bang. Like with the two marks, said Amy. Like... As you say, with the two marks, said the doctor. But I've now neutralised the effect. Ask me how. How, said the future Rory. You couldn't possibly begin to understand, but thanks for asking. <laughs> that was the other one. Yep. Again, it's just... It's so he's, mad. He's captured Matt Smith perfectly, yep. and that's what's good about it. And as I say, yep. it's just a shame there wasn't a bit more for Amy to do. Maybe yep. Amy could have got to know... Maybe Amy could have got to know Rebecca a little bit more, and I don't know, but, but it's it's, fair, it's a mild criticism because it's not a Dr. Amy and Rory story, really. Yeah, to be fair, Amy got a lot of time in telly, and Rory didn't always, so here yeah. we're addressing the Yeah, it's quite it. good because Rory gets a lot of good stuff to do. The whole thing with the two Rorys, it's because what ends up happening, Rory gets obviously zapped by Weeping Angel and sent back in time, and as there's a good bit of meta commentary where he talks about all he has to do is sit around and wait. You know, he's waiting for a, a month for everyone else to turn up um, to get him. And. Rory has arranged for this equipment to to get set up in his field and he ends up tripping over a piece of cabling so that's how the angel's able to get him and the only reason the cable's there is because the angel got him and sent him back in time it's just another one of those sort of like you know loopy paradox things which yeah. is just it was hilarious it was yeah. so good it was joyous to read this again yeah. have I made it clear that I enjoyed this book yeah I think it's quite it's that's come across right, quite loud and clear <laughs> and this is unashamedly also my favourite original Doctor Who novel I love so many of them adore to pieces a good few of them but this is my number one as well so 
Yeah. I think I think we're united now. And so that was good. There we go. So thank you, Johnny Morris, and thank you, BBC Books, for commissioning Johnny Morris to write it. Yes, and thank Johnny for doing so. And again, Johnny, you're probably listening. Thanks again for the ABBA joke in Curse of Davros because we loved that in HMV Glasgow Fort and we said it on a daily basis. <laughs> well, Dave, it looks like um, time is against us. But Dave, before we go, we don't actually have any review from iWho because we finished it, but I do have the Doctor Who magazine review which was written by Michael Cregan. I presume it's pronounced Cregan, C-R-E-G-A-N, rather than Cregan. Probably. I, it I, would, I would say Cregan. Anyway. Michael, if we've got that wrong, you can write in and let us know. Absolutely. Or give us a call on 018 or a new number. So anyway, here we go. Here's what it says. This book sees the return of the Weeping Angels. Indeed, with a title like that, you'd be a bit cheesed off if it didn't. They're not the most obvious enemy to use in prose. They don't speak. And without their striking visual presence, Morris has to rely on human characters to make the angels seem properly threatening. This lot of angels have got a particularly cunning bunch of stunts up their stone sleeves, and our heroes are certainly kept on their toes working out what exactly the angels are up to. The Doctor is very well written here, and he's most definitely at the centre of the story. Amy and Rory don't have an awful lot to do, although there's more of Rory than you might expect. See what they're doing there and uh, yes, telling us? Yes, no, no spoilers there. This is the kind of story you can easily imagine in the TV series. It leaps from one big event to another and has the kind of plot that may well have you thumbing back a few pages to make sure you're following it properly. There's a reliance on a Tempus Ex Machina resolution to see off the angels, but that's backed up by signs of a new life for Mark and a nice reminder that we shouldn't get fixated on our past. That's all it. yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing. I mean, I'm someone who, to mangle a, a phrase from a, a Take That song, I look back, you know, they advise you not to look, to look back, but don't stare. I do it all the time. I went to see the film Past Lives at the cinema the other day. And I think it was the day after I read Touched by an Angel. So I could, have you seen it, Ken? Have you heard anything yet, about no. it? It's basically about two childhood sweethearts who reconnect once in early adulthood and then again later in adulthood and I'm someone who spends an awful lot of time thinking about people I've known in the past and wishing things are going differently so it's um, it's good advice not to not to overdo it but don't forget them because that's not nice obviously never forget Dave absolutely that's never another forget. another take that song there yes I did fantastic that yeah I wondered I wasn't yeah. sure <laughs> yes it was deliberate so Dave yes Kenneth what are we playing out with today well Dave given that um You've been joining in with these song selections and cutting me off in my prime. Well, you know, you get to talk to all the authors whilst I'm, you know, building stages or humping guitars up flights yep. of stairs. So well, I think I should be allowed to, to right, pick well, some of the songs occasionally. OK, well, tell you what, we'll yes. start off with my choice. Right. And my choice is another Petro Boy song. <laughs> right. <laughs> and this one is called Memory of the Future. And listen ah. to the lyrics. You seem to be inevitable to me, like a memory of the future. I've waited all of my life. I've waited all of my life. I've waited all of my life to find you. So I think it seems quite appropriate when was, for this. Yeah, it does. When was that song released? Was That's, that a 90s song? It's, no, it's oh. a more recent one. About, I was going to say it's about 10 years ago. Okay, interesting. So, there we go. So over to Neil and Chris. So there we go. Thanks for listening, guys and girls and everybody else. And we will be back with you very soon. We'll see you tomorrow, hopefully. seems to be Like a memory of the future I was and will be with you Over and over again I 
No, enough. My choice is actually very 90s. This is from a CD single. It was released in 1999. This was the B-side. It was a dance cover version of the famous song Sometimes When We Touch. But the B-side was an absolute high-energy banger called Angel In Your Eyes by a chap called Newton. So let's have a bit of that instead. (laughs) 